my friends so just a quick note before this episode um i think that past lives and reincarnation is a topic to touch on because it provides insight perspective um peace uh an understanding of karma an understanding of a lot of different things so i hope you really enjoy this episode it's a longer one so it's in a couple of segments um If you have other topics that you're interested in that are related, send me some messages. And I very much appreciate supporters of the podcast, and I am looking for sponsorships. Um, Enjoy the topic. So today I want to talk about past lives um, and reincarnation. I'm not sure about you. I was always unsure about, you know, my belief in it until I had um, a experience in breathwork where I was able to be in a state of consciousness that allowed me to access um, past lives. It's kind of ironic, in fact, because... You know, when I was in this journey of discovery, I saw past life regression and all this stuff about past lives. And I was like, "Mm, that's not for me. You know, I'm not into that. I'm really just wanting to focus my awareness on this lifetime. And I'm not sure if, you know, things that I would remember, if it would like, you know, kind of mess with me and stuff. So I'd rather just not know. And then, well, put a thought out into the universe about something, I guess, well, it came to me. So I had experience directly, so now I am definitely a firm believer in not only past lives, but many, many, many past lives, and also what it looks like when you're not incarnated, um, our true form. It's beautiful and I'm thankful that I had the experience of being able to see this um, and experience it. So um, I have in front of me Raja Yoga by Swami Vivekananda and there's a chapter on reincarnation. I also have another book that I might read some excerpts from or something Um, but I'm going to start here. So in reincarnation the chapter in Raja Yoga, it starts out with a quote from the, oh gosh, watch my pronunciation on this, from the Bhagavad Gita. Both you and I have passed through many births. You know them not, I know them all. Of the many riddles that have perplexed the intellect of man in all climes and times, the most intricate is himself. Of the myriad mysteries that have called forth his energies to struggle for their solution from the very dawn of history, the most mysterious is his own nature. It is at once the most insoluble enigma and the problem of all problems. As the starting point and the repository of all we know and feel and do, there never has been nor will be a time when man's own nature will cease to demand his best and foremost attention. Um, Before I continue on, I just wanted to mention that there is a nice um, calm and peaceful feeling when you're able to believe in reincarnation um, because then if you don't experience everything in this lifetime, it's like, well you have that understanding that perhaps I've had this in a previous lifetime or perhaps I'll have this in a upcoming lifetime. So it kind of gives perspective and it pulls you back and zooms you out and has you thinking about life like, well, this lifetime is what it is and I can create what I want in it. But if there are things that do not flow, it's, it's, for a reason and perhaps I should accept 
and allow whatever is flowing in this lifetime to flow. Um, <coughs> so I'm going to continue on and hopefully not do too many side notes so we can get through this chapter. Um, through, oh, though through hunger after that truth, which of all others has the most intimate connection with his very existence, though through an all-absorbing desire for an inward standard by which to measure the outward universe, though through the absolute and inherent necessity of finding a fixed point in a universe of change, man has sometimes clutched at handfuls of dust for gold, and even when urged on by a voice higher than reason or intellect, has many times failed to interpret rightly the meaning of the divinity within. Still, there never has been a time since the search began when some race or some individuals did not hold aloft the lamp of truth. Taking a one-sided cursory and prejudiced view of the surroundings and the unessential details, sometimes disgusted also with the vagueness of many schools and sects, sects, <laughs> and often, alas, driven to the opposite extreme by the violent superstitions of organized priestcraft, men have not been wanting, especially among advanced intellects in either ancient or modern times, who not only have given up the search in despair, but have declared it fruitless and useless. Philosophers may fret and sneer, and priests ply their trade even at the point of the sword, but truth comes to those alone who worship at her shrine for her sake only, without fear and without shopkeeping. Light comes to individuals through the conscious efforts of their intellects. It comes slowly, though, to the whole race, through unconscious percolation. The philosophers show the voli volitional struggles of great minds. History reveals History reveals the silent process of permeation through which truth is absorbed by the masses. Of all the theories that have been held by man about himself, that of a soul e entity separate from the body and immortal has been the most widespread. And among those ha that have held the belief in such a soul, the majority of the thoughtful have always believed also in its pre-existence. At present, the greater portion of the human race with an organized religion believes in it, and many of the best thinkers in the most favored lands, though nurtured in religion avowedly hostile to every idea of the pre-existence of the soul, have endorsed it. Hinduism and Buddhism have it for their foundation. The educated classes among the ancient Egyptians believed in it. The ancient Persians arrived at it. Some of the Greek philosophers made it the cornerstone of their philosophy. The Pharisees among the Hebrews accepted it, and the Sufis among the Mohammedans also universally acknowledged its truth. As do I, my friends. Um, there must be peculiar surroundings which generate and foster certain forms of belief among nations. It required ages for the ancient races to arrive at any idea about something apart from the body which survives after death. It took ages more to come to any rational idea about this something which persists and lives apart from the body. It was only when the idea was reached of an entity whose connection with the body was only for a time, and only among those nations who arrived at such a conclusion, what the unavoidable question arose, whither, whence, the ancient Hebrews never disturbed their equanimity by questioning themselves about the soul. With them, death ended all. Carl Heckel justly says, though it is true that in the Old Testament, preceding the exile, the Hebrews distinguish a life principle different from the body, which is sometimes called nepesh or ruach, 
or reshama. Yet all these words correspond rather to the idea of breath than to than to that of spirit or soul. Also, in the writings of the Palestinian Jews, after the exile, no mention is ever made of an individual immortal soul, but always only of a life breath emanating from God, which after the body is dissolved, is reabsorbed into the divine Rukah. The ancient Egyptians and the Chaldeans had peculiar beliefs of their own about the soul, but their ideas about this soul living after death must not be confused with those of the ancient Hindu, the Persian, the Greek, or any other Aryan race. There was for, from the earliest times a broad distinction between the Aryans and the non-Sanskrit-speaking Mlechians. Oh my goodness, that word is M-L-E-C-H-C-H-A-S. I am not sure I pronounced it correctly. I don't even know how to say that. Um, in the conception of the soul. So what they're saying is there was this, a distinction between the Aryans and the non-Sanskrit speaking people in the conception of soul. Externally, it was typified by their disposal of the dead. The <laughs> Malekchians mostly trying their best to preserve the dead bodies either by careful burial or by the more elaborate processes of mummifying and the Aryans generally burning their dead. Herein lies the key to a great secret. The fact that no Malekchia race, whether Egyptians, Assyrian, or Babylonian, ever attained to the idea of the soul as a separate entity which can live independent of the body, which th without the help of the Aryans, especially of the Hindus. Yes, it's a very, very, very widely accepted. It's completely accepted in Hinduism. It is one of their um, underlying premises. I, I really appreciate that, um, the knowledge that comes from the Hindu religion on reincarnation. Um, although Her Herodotus states that the Egyptians were the first to conceive the idea of the immortality of the soul and states as a doctrine of the Egyptians that the soul after the dissolution of the body enters again and again into a creature that comes to life, then that the soul wanders through all the animals of the land and the sea and through all the birds and finally after 3,000 years returns to a human body. Yet modern researches into Egyptology have hitherto, hitherto <laughs> found no trace of metempsychosis in the popular Egyptian religion. On the contrary, the most recent researches, researches of Maspero A. Ehrman and other, um, sorry, eminent Egyptologists tend to confirm that supposition that the doctrine of palingenesis was not at home with the Egyptians. With the ancient Egyptians, the soul was only a double, having no individuality of its own and never able to break its connection with the body. It persisted only so long as the body lasted, and if by chance the corpse was destroyed, the departed soul suffered a second death and annihilation. The soul after death was allowed to roam freely all over the world, but it must always return at night to where the corpse was, feeling always miserable, always hungry and thirsty, always extremely desirous to enjoy life once more, and never being able to fulfill the desire. If any part of its old body was injured, the soul was also invariably injured in its corresponding Heart. And this idea explains the solicitude of the ancient Egyptians to preserve their dead. That kind of sounds like everyone is in hell on earth in like a ghosty-like body after death. That's not very positive to think about. Um, at, the first, at first, the desserts were chosen as 
oh my gosh, sorry you guys. At first, the deserts were chosen as the burial place. I wonder if I'm hungry right now for dessert. Um, that was a weird slip. <laughs> um, they were chosen because the dryness of the air did not allow the body to perish soon, thus granting to the departed soul a long lease of existence. In the course of time, one of the gods discovered the process of making mummies, through which the devout hoped to preserve the dead bodies of their ancestors for an almost infinite length of time, thus securing immortality to the departed ghost, however miserable it might be. Ah, yes, he even describes it how I did. Um, the perpetual regret for the world in which the soul could take no further interest never ceased to torture the deceased. Oh, my brother, exclaims the departed, <clears throat> Without not thyself from drinking and eating, from drunkenness, from love, from all enjoyment, from following thy desire by night and by day, put not sorrow within thy heart, for what are the years of a man upon earth? The West is a land of sleep and of heavy shadows, a place wherein the inhabitants, when once installed, slumber on in their mummy forms, never more waking to see their brethren never more to recognize their fathers and mothers with hearts forgetful of their wives and children the living water which earth giveth to all who dwell upon it is for me stagnant and dead the water floweth to all who are on earth while for me it is but liquid putrefaction this water that is mine since I came into this funnel, funeral valley, I know not where, not what I am. Give me to drink of running water. Let me be placed by the edge of the water with my face to the north, that the breeze may caress me and my heart be ref refreshed from its sorrow. That was um, from Ma Maspero. It's like... It was a Egyptian thing, um, uh, <laughs> Egyptian thing. It's from like e some book about Egyptians. Among the Chaldeans also, although they did not speculate so much as the Egyptians as to the condition of the soul after death, the soul was still a double and was bound to its sepulture. They also could not conceive of a state without his this physical body and expected a resurrection of the corpse again to life and though the goddess ishtar after great perils and adventures procured the resurrection of her shepherd husband dumuzi the son of e and Demkina, the most pious votaries pleaded in vain from temple to temple for the resurrection of their dead friends. Thus we find that the ancient Egyptians and Chaldeans never could entirely dissociate the idea of the soul from the corpse and of the departed or from the sepulture. I know I should know this word. It's a common word but I feel like I'm saying it wrong uh, out loud. The state of earthly existence was best after all, and the departed were always longing to have a chance once more to renew it, and the living were fervently hoping to help them in prolonging the existence of the miserable double and striving the best they could to help them. This is not the soil out of which any higher knowledge of the soul can spring. In the first place, the whole idea is grossly materialistic, and even then it is one of terror and agony. Frightened by the almost innumerable powers of evil and making hopeless, agonized efforts to avoid them, the soul of the living, like their dead ideas of the souls of the departed, wander all over the earth, though they might, could never get beyond the sepulture and the crumbling corpse. We must turn now for the source of the higher ideas of the soul to another race whose God was an all-merciful, all-pervading being manifesting himself through various bright, benign, and helpful divas. 
the first of all the human race who addressed their God as father. Oh, take me by the hands, even as a father takes his dear son, with whom life has a hope and not a despair, whose religion was not the intermittent groans escaping from the lips of an agonized man during the intervals of a life of mad excitement, but whose ideas come to us redolent with the aroma of the field and forest, whose songs of praise spontaneous, free, joyful, ooh, is this paganism? Sounds like it. Like the songs which burst forth from the throats of the birds when they hail this beautiful world, illuminated by the first rays of the Lord of the day. Come down to us even now through the vista of eighty centuries as fresh calls from heaven. We turn to the ancient Aryans. Plate, oh, ancient Aryans. I'm not sure who the ancient Aryans are. Let's check it out. I'm guessing they're talking about the Babylonians, etc., like they mentioned earlier. Um, place me in that... Oh my gosh, my dog is sniffing right in the microphone. I hope that's not loud. Place me in that deathless, undecaying world where is the light of heaven and everlasting luster shines. Make me immortal in that realm where dwells King Vivasvan's <laughs> son, where is the secret shrine of heaven? Make me immortal in that realm where they more, oh my gosh, where they move even as they list. This old kind of scripture throws me for a loop when I try to read it. In the third sphere of the inmost heaven, where the worlds are full of light, make me immortal in that realm of bliss. These are the prayers of the Aryans in their oldest record, the Rig Veda Samhita. Ah, India, yay! We've made it to India. We find at once a whole world of difference between the Mlecha and the Aryan ideals. To the one, this body and this world were all that were real and all that were desirable. A little life fluid which flew off from the body at death to feel torture and agony at the loss of the enjoyments of the senses could they fondly hope be brought back if the body was carefully preserved, and thus the corpse became more of an object of care than the living man. The other found that that which left the body was the real man, and when separated from the body, it enjoyed a state of bliss higher than it ever enjoyed when it was in the body, and they hastened to annihilate the corrupted corpse by burning it. Here we find the germ out of which a true idea of the soul could come. So that sounds like from the Rig Veda, this idea, this thought process, this is what all of the religions like, uh, well, not all, but very a lot of common religions in the United States um, base their, uh, you know, well, about death and immortality, immortality of the soul and everything else comes from the Rig Veda, comes from India. So for people that have, you know, m minds that are close to their own religion, it just shows you that if you know a lot and you know enough about your own religion, you'll know its origins. And so the prejudice and the hatred that might exist or the fear that might exist about things like yoga and accepting other religions and just diversity and being open to it, it's, it's silly, it's ignorance. And so hopefully the more people learn about their own beliefs, they'll realize sometimes they come from India or other places and it just offers perspective. Um, okay, here it was where the real man was not the body, but the soul, where all ideas of an inseparable connection between the real man and the body were utterly absent that a noble idea of the freedom of the soul could arise. And it was when 
the Aryans penetrated even beyond the shining cloth of the body with which the departed soul was enveloped and found its real nature, a formless, individual principle that the question inevitably arose, whence? It was in India and among the Aryans that the doctrine of the pre-existence, the immortality, and the individuality of the soul first arose. Recent researches in Egypt have failed to show any trace of the doctrines of an independent and individual soul existing before and after the earthly phase of existence. Some of the mysteries were no doubt in the possession of this idea, but in those it has been traced to India. I am convinced, says Carl Heckel, that the deeper we enter into the study of the Egyptian religion, the more clearly it is shown that the doctrine of metapsychosis was entirely foreign to the popular Egyptian religion, and that even that which single mysteries possessed of it was not inherent in the Osiris teachings, but derived from Hindu sources. Later on, we find that Alexandrian Jews imbued with the doctrine of an individual soul, and the Pharisees of the time of Jesus, as already stated, not only had faith in the individual soul, but believed in its wanderings through various bodies, and thus it is easy to find how Christ was recognized as the incarnation of an older prophet, and Jesus himself directly asserted that John the Baptist was the prophet Elias come back again. If ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Matt chapter 11 verse 14. The idea of a soul, wow, my Catholicism came back real quick when I read that. <laughs> It sounded like I was in church, like reading out loud. Um, the idea of a soul and of its individuality among the Hebrews evidently came through the higher mystical teachings of the Egyptians, who in their turn had derived it from India, and that it should come through Alexandria is significant since the Buddhist records clearly show Buddhist missionary activity in Alexandria and Asia Minor. Pythagoras is said to have been the first Greek who taught the doctrine of palingenesis among the Hellenes. As an Aryan race, already burning their dead and believing in the doctrine of an individual soul, it was easy for the Greeks to accept the doctrine of reincarnation through the Pythagorean teachings. According to Apollius, Pythagoras had gone to India where he had been instructed by the Brahmins. How funny is that? You know, Pythagoras is one of one of my favorite philosophers. Um, well, I have so many, but um, of the Greeks, he's definitely always stood out to me. And it's funny, I never knew this about that he got, he was taught by Brahmins in India. Go figure, right? Um, so far we have learnt what wherever the soul was held to be an individual, the real man, and not a vivifying part of the body only, the doctrine of its pre-existence inevitably came, and that those nations that believed in the independent individuality of the soul almost always signified it externally by burning the bodies of the departed. Though one of the ancient Aryan races, the Persian, developed at an early period and without any Semitic influence, a peculiar method of disposing of the bodies of the dead, the very name by which they call their Towers of Silence, comes from the Sanskrit word uh, root daha, to burn. In short, the races who did not pay much attention to the analysis of their own nature never went beyond the material body as their all in all, and even when driven by higher light to penetrate beyond, they only came to the conclusion that somehow or another, at some distant period of time, this body will become incorruptible. On the other hand, that race which spent the best part of its energies in the inquiry into the nature of man as a thinking being, 
the Indo-Aryan, soon found out that beyond this body, beyond even the shining body which their forefathers longed for, is the real man, the principal, the individual who clothes himself with this body and then throws it off when worn out. Was such a principle created? If creation means something coming out of nothing, the answer is a decisive no. This soul is without birth and without death. It is not a compound or a combination, but an independent individual, and as such, it cannot be created or destroyed. It is only traveling through various states. Naturally, the question arises, where was it all this time? The Hindu philosophers say that in the physical sense, it was passing through different bodies, or really, a metaphysically speaking, passing through different mental planes. Are there any proofs, apart from the teachings of the Vedas, upon which the doctrine of reincarnation has been founded by the Hindu philosophers? There are, and we hope to show later on that there are grounds as valid for it as for any universally accepted doctrine. But first, we shall see what some of the greatest of modern European thinkers have thought about reincarnation. Schopenhauer, in his book Die Welt als Will Unverstellung, speaking about palingenesis, says, What sleep is for the individual? Death is for the will. I would not endure to continue the same actions and suffering throughout an eternity without without true gain, if memory and individuality remained to it. It flings them off, and this is left, and through this sleep of death it reappears fitted out with another intellect as a new being, a new day, tempts to new shores. These constant new births, then, constitute the succession of the life dreams of a will which in itself is indestructible until instructed and improved by so much in such various successive knowledge in a constantly new form it abolishes and abrogates itself it must not be neglected that even empirical grounds supports a palingenesis of this kind as a matter of fact there does exist a connection between the birth of the newly appearing beings and the death of those that are worn out. It shows itself in the great fruitfulness of the human race, which appears as a consequence of devastating diseases. When in the 14th century the Black Death had for the most part depopulated the Old World, a quite abnormal fruitfulness appeared among the human race, and twin births were very frequent. The circumstance was also remarkable that none of the children born at this time obtained their full number of teeth. Huh, <laughs> that's weird. Thus nature, nature, exerting itself to the utmost, was negardedly in details. This is related by F. Schnurrer in his Chronik der Seuchen, 1825. Oh man, these are German words now. Why do I do this to myself, my friends? Casper um, <laughs> also, in his Uber de Warschlich blah 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 mention of 1835 <laughs> confirms the principle that the number of births in a given population has the most decided influence upon the length of life and mortality in it as this always keeps pace with mor mortality so that always and everywhere the deaths and the births increase and decrease in like proportion which he places beyond, beyond doubt by an accumulation of evidence collected from many lands in their various provinces. Okay, so if you're interested in this research from this guy, it's F. Schnurr. The last name is S-C-H-N-U-R-R-E-R. -R -E -R. Um, in the 1800s, he wrote about this. Um, and yet... It is impossible that there can be a physical, casual connection between my early death and the fruitfulness of a marriage with which I have nothing to do, or conversely. Thus, here the metaphysical appears undeniable, and in a stup stupendous manner as the immediate ground of explanation of the physical. Every newborn being comes fresh, 
and blithe into the new existence and enjoys it as a free gift. But there is and can be nothing freely given. Its fresh existence is paid for by the old age and death of a worn out existence which has perished, but which contained the indestructible seed out of which the new existence has arisen. They are one being. The great English philosopher Hume, nihilistic though he was, I, I do, and <laughs> uh, Frederick Nietzsche, I also believe is, a, I think, considered a nihilist. I could be wrong here. I like reading that philosophy. I think there's a lot to be taken from it. Um, he says in the skeptical essay on immortality, the metapsychosis is therefore the only system of this kind that philosophy can listen to. The philosopher Lessing, with a deep poetical insight, asks, is this hypothesis so laughable merely because it is the oldest? Because the human understanding before the soph sophistries, oh, the people, the sophists um, of the schools had dissipated and debilitated it, lighted upon it at once? Why should not I come back as often as I am capable of acquiring fresh knowledge, fresh experience? Do I bring away so much from one life that there is nothing to repay the trouble of coming back? Aha, karma, here we go. See, I made a, <laughs> before I started this second segment, I made a ground zero segment to touch on the first part of this episode, uh, saying that I think it, it helps to understand um, about reincarnation because it, it gives understanding into karma and how that works. And that is what this is referring to. Do I bring away so much from one life that there is nothing to repay the trouble of coming back? So whatever your, whatever karma you create in one life, it carries into the next. I think that hopefully they'll talk about this. The arguments for and against the doctrine of a pre-existing soul reincarnating through many lives have been many, and some of the greatest thinkers of all ages have taken up the gauntlet to defend it. And so far as we see, if there is an individual soul that it existed before seems inevitable. If the soul is not an individual but a combination of skandhas or notions, as the mad, madhyamic because among the Buddhists insists, still they find pre-existence absolutely necessary to explain their position. The argument showing the impossibility of an infinite existence's beginning in time is unanswerable. Though attempts have been made to ward it off by appealing to the power of God to do anything, however contrary to reason it may be. We are sorry to find that this most fallacious argument proceeding from some of the most thoughtful persons. In the first place, God being the universal and common cause of all phenomena, the question was to find the natural causes of certain phenomena in the human soul. And the do dos ex machina theory is therefore quite irrelevant. It amounts to nothing more than confession of ignorance. <laughs> I am going to quote that. Oh my gosh. Let me pause the episode so I can write this one down because I'm sharing it. Okay, noted that spot in the book. We can give that answer to every question asked in every branch of human knowledge and stop all inquiry and therefore knowledge altogether. Secondly, this constant appeal to the omnipotence of God is only a word puzzle. The cause as cause is and can only be known to us as sufficient for the effect and nothing more. As such, we have no more idea of an infinite effect than of an omnipotent cause. Moreover, all our ideas of God are limited. Even the idea of cause limits our idea of God. Thirdly, even taking the position for granted, we are not bound to allow any such absurd theories as something coming out of nothing or infinity beginning in time, so long as we can give a better explanation. A so-called strong argument is made against the idea of pre-existence by asserting that the majority of mankind are not conscious of it. 
To prove the validity of this argument, the person who offers it must prove that the whole of the soul of man is bound up in a faculty of memory. If memory be the test of existence, then all the part of our lives which is not now in it must be non-existent. And every person who in a state of coma or otherwise loses his memory must be non-existent also. Yeah, what happens like, what about dementia and Alzheimer's? Um, the premises from which the inference is drawn of a previous existence and that too on the plane of conscious action as adduced by the Hindu philosophers are chiefly these. First, how else do you know or no, sorry. First, how else do you explain this world of inequalities? Here is one child born in the providence of a just and merciful God with every circumstance conduce, conducing to his becoming a good and useful member of the human race. And perhaps at the same instant and in the same city, another child is born under circumstances, every one of which is against his becoming good. We see children born to suffer. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I'm one of them. Perhaps all their lives in that owning to no fault of theirs. Yeah, no, it's karma. Why should it be so? What is the cause? Of whose ignorance is it the result? If not the child's, why should it suffer? For its parents' actions? You know, this is making me wonder... You know how in a lot of religions they baptize children and it's supposed to like get rid of original sin? I'm wondering if it's actually, <clears throat> if it goes back to like the origins of baptism, if somewhere along the lines they got this understanding from the Vedas about reincarnation and karma and whatnot and they were trying to cleanse the newborn babies or the babies, whatever, during baptism of previous karma, like past life karma. Hmm. I'm wondering because everything seems to come back from really ancient times. And even though, you know, we have Catholics, Protestants, Methodists, all these different Christianity sect, sects, um, and none of them you know, openly admit, yeah, this comes from Hinduism. Well, I mean, how many study Hinduism or the Vedas or anything that far back anyway? You know, I think most people stick in their lane. They stay in their lane. They know their religion. They become sometimes experts of their own religion without even understanding its origin. So I'm wondering if the origin of baptism has something to do with, you know, this quote, original sin that I never believed or accepted in. Um, I think that it's really talking about past life karma. So it, if, if in the Catholic religion when I was growing up and when I had my own kids and had the option to baptize, I think if I would have understood it as being a cleansing ritual to cleanse of previous life karma and whatnot, I would have been a lot more accepting of it because that makes sense to me. Um, however, original sin never did make sense to me. So that's why I think the journey of discovery and exploring things is so important because one explanation of something might not add up in your head, but if you keep looking and you keep searching, I know who has time for this, I guess me, because I'm like some sort of uh, sage or wisdom seeker it's what I do but like on average how many people have the time to really explore all different belief systems to try to find things that actually fit that um, I guess it's just personal preference on how you choose to spend your time I'm curious about all these things I hope you guys are otherwise why would you be listening to this It'd be pretty boring for you um, <laughs> so it is much better to confess ignorance than try to evade the question by the allurements of future enjoyments in proportion to the evil here, or by posing mysteries, not only undeserved suffering forced upon us by any agent is immoral, not to say unjust, but even the future making up theory has no legs to stand upon. How many of the miserably born struggle to towards a higher life and how many more succumb to the circumstances they are placed under should those who grow worse and more wicked by being forced to be 
born under evil circumstances be rewarded for the wickedness of their lives in the future? In that case, the more wicked the man is here, the better will be his deserts, deserts hereafter. There is no other way to vindicate the glory and the liberty of the human soul and to reconcile the inequalities and the horrors of this world than to place the whole burden upon the legitimate cause, our own independent actions or karma. Yes. Oh gosh, I just got goosebumps because I've been hoping that he would get into this in this chapter. Not only so, but every theory of the creation of the soul from nothing inevitably leads to the fatalism and preordination, and instead of a merciful father, places before us a hideous, cruel, and ever angry God to worship. And so far as the power of religion for good or evil is concerned, this theory of a created soul, leading to its corollaries of fatalism and predestination is responsible for the horrible idea prevailing among Christians and Mohammedans that the heathen are the lawful victims of their swords and for all the horrors that have followed and are following it still. But an argument which the philosophers of the Naya school have always advanced in favor of reincarnation and which to us seems conclusive is this. Our experiences cannot be annihilated. Our actions, karma, though apparently disappearing, remain still unperceived, adrishtam, and reappear again in their effect as tendencies, pravritis. Even little babies come with certain tendencies, fear of death, for example. Now, if a tendency is the result of repeated actions, the tendencies with which we are born must be explained on that ground, too. Evidently, we could not have got them in this life. Therefore, we have to seek for their genesis in the past. Now, it is also evident that some of our tendencies are the effect of the self-conscious efforts peculiar to man. And if it is true that we are born with such tendencies, it rigorously follows that their causes were conscious efforts in the past. That is, we must have been on the same mental plane, which we call the human plane, before this present life. So far as explaining the tendencies of the present life by past conscious efforts go, efforts goes, the reincarnationists of India and the latest school of evolutionists are at one. The only difference is that the Hindus, being spiritual, explain them by the conscious efforts of individual souls and the materialistic school of evolutionists by hereditary physical transmission. The schools which hold to the theory of creation out of nothing are entirely out of court. The issue has to be fought out between the reincarnationists who hold that all experiences are stored up as tendencies in the subject of those experiences, the individual soul, and are transmitted by reincarnation of that unbroken individuality, and the materialists who hold that the brain is the subject of all actions and accept the theory of transmission through cells. I think they're both wrong, actually. To be honest with you guys, I think it's a combination of both of those things. I think that cells hold memory. I do. So I think that when you're reborn, <clears throat> we're almost done here with this um, chapter, one more paragraph. But I really think that with the research that we see and we know that cells hold memory, I'm thinking that when you're born into a body, you're consciousness inhabits that body and then it uh, activates DNA and I think that you have cellular memory um, about a lot of different things and then other things are like a soul journey type of you know memory and then I think there's you know like just that consciousness so I think it's a combination of the physical and the spiritual. You know, I'm going to walk the middle path as usual and say I think they're both right and neither one are 100% right. 
Um, thus, the doctrine of reincarnation assumes an infinite importance to our mind, for the fight between reincarnation and a mere cellular transmission is, in reality, the fight between spirituality and materialism. There doesn't need to be a fight. Why does Vivekananda even say this? He's like such a brilliant yogi and leader. I'm wondering why he is using these words to describe it because it's surprising to me. Um, from my level of understanding and consciousness, a fight isn't necessary. Um, a mutual understanding and learning from each other, I think, is more important and more appropriate and more helpful. So I would even correct Swami Vivekananda on this one, um, which takes a lot of courage for me. But I would. I'd argue it to his face and talk to him about it because I think either I'm misinterpreting what he's saying or he's just using those words and he doesn't really mean that there should be some sort of, you know, arguing between the two sides. Oh, interesting. If cellular transmission is the all-sufficient explanation, materialism is inevitable and there is no necessity for the theory of a soul. If it is not a sufficient explanation, the theory of an individual soul bringing into this life the experiences of the past is an absolute tr is as absolutely true. There is no escape from the alternative, reincarnation or materialism. Which shall we accept? So, wow, Vivekananda, a little shocked right now. I've never read this chapter in Raja Yoga, so this was the first time for me. And I am really surprised that he's being so black and white. Um, because as we know, nothing is black and white. Everything is a continuum. So rather than saying, oh, is the spiritual side right? You know, is it the left or is it the right? Is it the materialist side? It's got to be somewhere in the middle of the continuum, right? There's never anything black and white. So both of them are correct. There's just somewhere on this little, you know, graph where they both meet in the middle and that's where the truth lies. Um, so that would be my, quote, enlightened viewpoint. Um, not saying that Swami Vivekananda is necessarily wrong, but this is his opinion and I disagree with it. So now you guys know mine. Um, I have another book on reincarnation that I'm going to grab and we'll do another section. I hope you guys are liking it. Okay, my friends, so this book is The Shaman Within. I study shamanism also. Um, I like, I'm a natural, I don't know. <laughs> I started studying it after I started experiencing shamanic travel. Um, so this book is written by a PhD who's also a shaman. The section on dying, he has a little section on the cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. So I would like to look at it from, I mean, we looked at it from a yogic perspective, Swami Vivekananda, Raja Yoga, but now I would like to see what the shamanic um, explanation is, at least by this author. He says, the natural world around us can be characterized by a cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. This cycle plays out in the so-called living species on this planet, in our planet's geologic forms, and in the multitude of stars in the cosmos. A simple shamanic journey can help us deepen our understanding of death and experience the organic natural cycle of death and birth. Yeah, that's what happened with me, uh, shamanic journey, which is how I saw what I saw. An aspect of our own life cycle as an animal species is that we need to kill in order to live. Every day we cause the death of plants or animals directly or more often through surrogates in order to feed ourselves. This is the nature of things. Yet we are seldom aware that daily we cause the death of other living beings. We tend to ignore or forget this fact and instead consider the beings that have died for us as foodstuff neatly and conveniently packaged on grocery store shelves. Indeed, we tend to find value only in our own human life cycle and not in that of fellow creatures. Robert Bringhurst describes the barriers we erect between ourselves and the rest of the world. 
I mean the barriers of law and of social convention which assign to the lives of human beings a theoretically infinite value which they treat the lives of wild creatures as theoretically zilch. I mean our way of assigning value to pets and livestock based on nothing but market price and human sentiment. He adds, a society happy to kill a billion birds or a hundred thousand cattle in the vague hope of saving a single unspecified human life or to mow down a whole forest, a mow, <laughs> mow down a whole forest to make one day's worth of new of new sprint or to sterilize a river in exchange for some ounces of gold is a society that I suspect has lost its sense of what life and death are for a society that has lost its admiration and its gratitude for life and death alike <sighs> goosebumps I love reading this book the shamanic viewpoint is very earthy and Oh, it has a lot to do with nature and being how recognizing we are one with nature. I really love this. So continuing on, he says, shamanic practice with its awareness of the sacred in all of spirit in everything can help us transform into a sacred act. Our need to kill other species. This transformation is much needed to help bring harmony to our living planet and to regain a healthy view of our own personal death. We need not feel guilty and we need not try to avoid killing other species to feed ourselves. It is a matter of asking permission to take another life to feed our own. It is a matter of appropriateness. It is a matter of impeccability crossing the boundary between ourselves and the species that feed us. It is a matter of gratitude. Through the shamanic awareness of the spiritual dimension in everything, <clears throat> eating and feeding ourselves can become a conscious manifestation of the interconnectedness of everything. On the physical level, the atoms and molecules from the bodies of the plants and animals we kill become part of our own bodies. On the spiritual level, this union <clears throat> this union gosh, I'm losing my voice. This union manifests in the recognition that indeed we are all one. Right. So if you guys haven't <clears throat> checked out my episode um, at this point, I only have one published on mushrooms. Um, definitely check it out. I touch on this fact how I believe that mushrooms have uh, intelligence in their at a cellular level and that when we consume them, it becomes part of us and we're able to <clears throat> gain intelligence from from what we eat and when it is fungus um, especially certain kinds of fungus we're able to absorb a lot of knowledge um, mushrooms have been on the planet a lot longer than we have in my opinion I'm pretty sure that's fact actually <laughs> um, you may have your own ritual that you do or a prayer that you may say before you eat <clears throat> Here's a simple ritual that recognizes the sacred and interconnectedness. Okay, we don't need to, I mean, we know how to show gratitude before we eat. <clears throat> but that is a really important thing to think about, is that we do cause death on a regular basis. And in yoga, one of the first <clears throat> limbs of yoga talks about non-killing as being a way of life so definitely relevant so I don't necessarily think I want to read too much more it goes into like unresolved business preparing yourself for death um, helping people who are dying loss and grief it's such a great book this shamanic book I also have another book here I'm not going to read it out of it because this episode's getting longer and longer and longer um it's by J. Allen Danilek I haven't read the whole thing I've just read here and there out of it it's called mystery of reincarnation the evidence and analysis of rebirth this book is interesting because it talks about obviously <clears throat> the history 
And then it goes into evidence for reincarnation, physical evidence, socio-psychological evidence, um, case studies, practical objections, ethical and religious objections, um, why we reincarnate, soul versus personality, all these different things. So it's a real great book. Perhaps I'll pick a... Ooh, there's even a chapter on a new perspective on karma. So you might see another episode come out where I pick some stuff from that book and read about it. Um, I have so many books. I also have a great book on world religions. I might do a little bit on that in an episode. But I'm going to leave you with this for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, and again, please support the podcast and um, subscribe. And if you are in a position of sponsorship, if you have a business or something that I could promote for you on my podcast, my podcast is global now. And so you could have a free spot. I could help promote for you. So if you're interested in that, send me an email, thebodyowl at gmail.com. Until next time, everyone, sending you love and positive vibes.